Well, this morning we are going to continue in John's gospel, and we come to one of the most beloved passages in the whole Bible. Sometimes it's called the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. It's beloved, I suspect, because uh, we, we know from experience that final words have a sort of weight to them. And yet there is something especially beautiful about a final prayer. A final prayer can give you a window into someone's heart. And John 17 is one of those passages that gives us a window into Jesus' heart. It's the longest prayer we have in Scripture from Jesus. And it's the last one that John records for us. It shows us Jesus praying for himself and his disciples. As we pay attention to it, we'll find the, the things that Jesus longs for most and the things, the ways he, he loves his disciples to the very end. Uh, our passage this morning is John 17, 1 through 19. And if you don't have a Bible, you'll be greatly helped if you have one in front of you. We'd love to give you a Bible as a gift. Our ushers have them available. Just raise your hand. We'll be glad to give you one. That's uh, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. You can follow along on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. This is what scripture says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that I have given is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me from, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me, I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. 
your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Lord Jesus, we need your help to be sanctified in truth. You promise that your word is truth and that we be sanctified by it. Would you, would you make that true this morning? Would you work it from our ears to our minds down into our heart? Would our understanding grow even as our likeness to you grows, even as our usefulness for you grows, Lord Jesus? Would you do that this morning? Grant us to be better servants for you, our master and great high priest. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Final prayers are especially significant. Uh, Near the end of the life of the Scottish reformer John Knox, he was surrounded by loved ones. And we have recorded for us by his biographer, Ian Murray, his last prayer. In it, you see a window into his heart. He says this, live in Christ, live in Christ. And then flesh need not fear death. Lord, grant true pastors to thy church that purity of doctrine may be maintained. Someone who loved the church to the end, a faithful pastor desiring that God would grant him this final petition to give good pastors to his church. As sweet as that is, the passage before us is so much sweeter because it shows us a window into the heart of Jesus himself. It's really not a hard passage to break down in terms of the sections within it. There's really three sections. We'll look at the first two of them this morning. The first in one to five, Jesus prays for himself, prays for himself. Then in six through 19, he prays for his disciples. That's the original disciples that he called in six through 19. And then through 20 through the rest of the chapter, he prays for us. That would be anyone who believes on the word that his disciples passed down. We'll come to that next week. But this morning, we're going to focus on these first two sections, Jesus praying for himself and Jesus praying for his disciples. And in doing so, we're going to see the things Jesus longs for most and the way he loves his disciples to the very end. Let's begin in 1 through 5. Jesus prays for himself. Verse 1 tells us how Jesus prayed. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. At this point, we're not told exactly where Jesus is. Could be they're still in the upper room. It could be they made their way into the garden at this point. Regardless of where he is, we're told of his posture. He he lifts his head toward heaven and prays. That was a, a common way for them to pray back then. And then he begins his prayer with a note of finality. Look at what he says here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. If you've been with us as we've been studying John's gospel, that phrase, the hour, may ring a bell because Jesus has rung it several times before in John's gospel. John's recorded for us back in chapter 2. Jesus' first grand sign he did at the wedding, turning water to wine. Maybe you remember his mother comes to him and asks him, what are you going to do about this problem, Jesus? And he says, "A woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That was a way of him saying, I have an appointment. 
I was sent to this world for a particular time and moment and to accomplish a thing, and that thing is not yet here. Then in chapter 7 and 8, two run-ins with the religious leaders. They start to realize Jesus is a problem, so they try to arrest him. And both times we're told they could not lay hold of him because his hour had not yet come. It's as if John is reminding us that Jesus has an appointment to keep, and until the time comes, nothing will, keep, will knock him off of his schedule. Well, finally, we are here. The, all that anticipation leads up to this moment, this prayer before the unfolding of what it is Jesus came to do. What does he ask in this moment? He asks, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. This is Jesus' petition in these first verses. He's going to say it twice from slightly different angles, but it's the same idea. Jesus asks the Father to glorify him. Now, you may ask, what does it mean to glorify someone? A quick definition is to, to robe someone in splendor. You can think of a king that puts on a crown with jewels in it or a fine robe of sorts to show his might, his authority. To glorify someone is to make their value known and seen, to, to robe them in glory. What sort of glory is Jesus to be robed in? What sort of crown is he to wear? Is, is he going to have a parade down the main street of Jerusalem? Will he have a bunch of minstrels going behind telling how wonderful Jesus is? Now, all of this has been leading in John's gospel to the surprising glory of Jesus hanging on a cross. The crown he wears will be a crown of thorns. His body will be robed with a sort of robe, but it's a robe of shame. And there will be no jewels upon him, but there will be rivers of blood as his life slips away dying at the hands of cruel Roman soldiers. The glory of this Jesus, of this King of Heaven, is, is not the glory of an earthly king in the way we would think of it, certainly not what people expected. Yet it was God's plan for his Messiah that he would come and suffer and die and in that moment show us something of God that was not knowable in that way before. Jesus has come for this very purpose, to die on the cross. And this is his final prayer in preparation for that moment. He says, Father, it's all been leading to this. Glorify me as we planned in eternity past. What comes next is Jesus giving three reasons, three grounds for his prayer. Three ways that the Father should consider his prayer and answer it. The first is in verses 2 through 3. It should be answered because Jesus has been given authority to give eternal life. Look there in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given to him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says, it's time to glorify me, Father, because you have given me this authority I have been given authority over all flesh, that's all mankind, specifically for a reason, to grant eternal life. 
Now, eternal life doesn't just mean life that goes on forever, although it is that, but it's more than that. Eternal life is defined by Jesus here. Eternal life is actually life with God forever, in relationship with God forever. Jesus says this is why he has come to earth. Now he is to be glorified because this is what he came to do, to bring sinners into relationship with God. Now, today we need to do a little defense against how common uh, opinion about how Jesus would bring us into relationship with God might hear this. Your average person on the street might think that it's possible to have a relationship with God any way you want. If I just empty my mind of all thoughts, maybe that's being close to God. Maybe I go out into nature and I feel especially close to God. Or, Or maybe it's just me praying earnestly. That's what it takes to be in relationship with God. But do you notice how in verse 3, Jesus defines what this relationship with God is like? And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. The implication here is all other gods are false. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus here makes an exclusive claim that if it's wrong, frankly, is the height of all pride. He claims that there is only one way to truly have relationship with God, and that is through the man, Jesus Christ himself. Now, if you're here this morning, uh, maybe you're not a Christian, and that sounds awfully narrow to you. It seems like, well, why would Jesus have the only way? Why would Christians have the only way to have a relationship with God? What about all the other religions in this world? A friend, if, if you start with the assumptions that we have today, I grant you that may seem like it makes sense. But if you start with the assumptions of the Bible, the shocking thing isn't that there wouldn't be more than one way. The shocking thing is that God would make any way for us to truly know him. Because we are rebels against this God. We are his enemies. And for him to bring us into a loving relationship with him, well, that is the most amazing thing of all. Jesus here claims the sole authority to bring people into this forever relationship with God. And he says, this is the reason why God should glorify him in this moment. The second ground, the second reason is in verse four. It's that Jesus has completed the work given to him by his father. In verse four, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, it'd be a mistake to think that Jesus came to earth and just did anything that he wanted to do on any given day, that he would just do a miracle whenever it felt like it, or that he would just grab a random fisherman and make him a disciple on a whim. Now, everything Jesus has done has been according to his Father's will, in perfect obedience to the Father. Now, kids, if uh, maybe you, your parents give you a list of chores things you're responsible for around the house, but I guess is you don't love them. Taking out the trash, doing the dishes, maybe it's as simple as cleaning up your room. Uh, Maybe you've had the experience where you get about halfway through your responsibilities and you think, eh, you know, I don't think they're going to notice if I don't finish this. And so you go off and watch TV or something and they always notice, don't they? Your parents always notice when you don't get through the whole list. Now, none of us are perfectly obedient in our own lives. But Jesus is very different from us. Jesus is perfectly obedient to his Father's will. Jesus never leaves something undone. He never does it halfway. 
He never does it in error. Jesus does all that the Father gave him to do. And as he's reaching the end of his earthly life, he prays in the presence of his disciples to say, I have done this, Father, so hear my prayer. The third and final ground is actually in the form of a second petition. It's on the same subject, though. Verse 5 is that Jesus should be glorified because the glory of heaven is already his. It's already his. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus here takes us back and gives us a window, not just into his heart, but back into eternity past. This is the deepest waters that you can find in the scripture. The deepest waters in John's gospel. A window into the eternal triune God that made us all. Jesus says that the glory he's asking the Father to grant him in the the cross and his resurrection and ascension, in a sense, it's already his. Because this Jesus was the son in heaven forever. This Jesus was the prince of heaven that was crowned with all glory, that had angels bow down before him long before the world was made. This Jesus that will ascend back to heaven, his true home is heaven itself. And there will be a welcome party when he gets back. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus here is claiming that he had the glory that God alone deserves in heaven before any creature was made, before any of us was a twinkle in our parents' eye. Jesus is asking his father to answer this prayer because he already is the rightful owner of heaven's glory. In the mystery of the Trinity, Jesus is the Son of God come down into the creation of this triune God. Not because God was missing something. Not because he needed anything from us. No, he was perfectly content forever in delight and joy in the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the community of the Trinity. But their love spilled over into that which they created. And now the Jesus that humbled himself to leave the glories of heaven is going back to that heaven. So he prays, Father, glorify me as we planned from eternity past. Now, friends, I I hope as complex as all that is, that the main thing that Jesus is asking for here is simple enough. He longs more than anything to glorify his Father by being glorified on the cross he came to bear. What is it that Jesus' heart longs for most? It is glory. The glory of God, and the glory of God magnified by his own glory on the cross of Calvary. Now, if you are here this morning and you're a Christian, if Jesus lives for the glory of God, then at the very least, we too should live for the glory of God. As the catechism says, what is the uh, chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what our mission is as a Christian, isn't it? So I need to ask, do you actually consciously live for the glory of God in your own life? Do you ever 
Decide whether you will take a job or not by asking yourself, will this make God look as great as he is? Will people look at me taking this job and say, wow, the God who made us all is amazing. Do you ever think to yourself, I will spend my money in this way because it will glorify God even if it doesn't work out for my short-term pleasure? A question a Christian needs to ask again and again is, Am I glorifying God with my life? Is it even my ambition? But I think we can get even more focal than that. We can, we can even put our finger even closer to where the text is leading us here this morning. Because the, the glory of God is most clearly seen in one place, on the cross of Christ. And that means as Christians, our worship and our lives can glorify God when they are centered on the cross of Christ. That means that we would forsake other things in this world so that the cross can comfort us in ways that nothing else really can. So take, for instance, maybe, maybe this week you find yourself doubting. Does anyone really care for me? No one called me this week. No one invited me to lunch after church. I feel like everyone's forgotten me. Does that mean God has forgotten me? Now, in that moment, you could go into self-pity mode. You could go into self-help mode and tell yourself how amazing you are. Or you could run to the cross and find the comfort of knowing that God cares for you. And he's proven it by sending his son to die for your greatest need, your sins. Or what if this week you find yourself just overwhelmed by the weight of the brokenness of this world? So many things that are just evil and wrong, and the news seems like it just never stops, a never-ending cycle of discouragement. And you just wonder, is the world just going to bowl me over? Am I just going to fall down underneath of this? Now, you could, you could go into self-medicating mode and try to drown your sorrows or veg out on Twitter or do something to make yourself not think about it. Or you could find comfort from the cross. You could remember that in that moment, the evil in this world was felt, that was dealt a decisive blow, and that God guaranteed us that righteousness will one day reign on this earth. It will be on this earth as it is in heaven one day, because Jesus died on the cross. Maybe you find yourself lonely, and you're just tired. You're just tired of feeling like there's no one who knows you. you know, it could be easy to try and fill yourself up with a sort of sugar high from shallow relationships and just unhealthily seeking after something just so you feel anything. Or you could run to the cross and let the comforts from the cross remind you that even if no one else in this world knows you, that you are known and loved and that you actually know the God that made you. That there's no other relationship like that, and it's yours because Jesus died for you on the cross. Brothers and sisters, is there any other reason for Christians to worship than the cross of Jesus? And that's one of the reasons why we, as a church, spend so much time trying to focus on the cross itself and the things we sing in the sermons we preach, at some point or the other, I need to get to the cross and what it means for us. And it's not because we're out of ideas or we're not creative. It's because we need it. 
It is the focal point of how we glorify God and how we find our joy in Jesus. Jesus here prays for himself. But in praying for himself, he reveals his deepest longing, the very glory of God. And he instructs us how we too can long for the glory of God to be seen in our lives and all over the world. But that's not the only thing Jesus prays for. This is the second section, verses 6 through 19. Jesus also prays for his disciples. And by extension, he shows us what he wants for us. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. Now, there is something especially sweet to being in someone's presence as they pray for you. Uh, kids, maybe you have this pattern in your, in your family. Maybe your parents get you ready for bed. And then before you go to sleep, they pray for you as a part of your nightly routine. Uh, maybe you don't appreciate it right now, but I promise you, one day you will. There is no greater, more sweeter way for someone to show their care and concern for you than to, to genuinely pray to the God who is sovereign and king over all of us. They, they are loving you in that moment. Uh, maybe for those of us who are a little older, you can remember back to someone praying for you along the way. And it's one of those moments where you knew that person genuinely loved you. Now, I don't know for sure that this is the reason why John remembered so much of what Jesus prayed. But I kind of think that maybe this is what the Holy Spirit used to make sure he got these words right. That as he and the rest of the disciples heard Jesus praying for them, it lodged in their heart. And for our good, it remained lodged there until they wrote it down and we have it today. Jesus' prayer for his disciples, we broke it down into three sections. And six through 10, he identifies the people he's praying for. He's identifying who he prays for in six through 10. Then in 11 through 16, he asks the father to protect them. He prays for protection. And then in 17 through 19, he asks the father to prepare them. He prays for their preparation to serve. Look at 6 through 10 first. He identifies those who he prays for in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus identifies this group of people in two ways. First, they are the people that are given to him by the Father. They're given to him. And second, they are the people that have been given the words of Jesus. They have been given the words of Jesus. They're both those who have been given and those who have been given the word. You look at that first theme there, the idea that they were given by Jesus. We just read verse 6. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Contrast between the world, all humanity, and those given to Jesus. Then verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This group that Jesus identifies are those that have been set apart by the Father, given to Jesus. Now, that is referring to the original disciples in this moment. 
Jesus is saying that it was not chance that he picked them off of a shoreline or found them behind a tax collector booth. That they were actually chosen by God much, much earlier than back. If you follow that thread back, it goes all the way back into eternity. This choice of the Father resulted in them being given to the Son. These are the people he is praying for. But notice there's also the flip side of that coin. It's not just that they were given. It's that how they respond to what they were given. In verses 7 and 8, he says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them. And come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus says that it's not just that you gave them to me. It's that when I in turn passed on the words that you gave me, Father, they responded in faith. They received the words. They believed they were from God himself. And they received them with faith. As hard as it is for our minds to wrap around this concept, Jesus is not embarrassed to say, if you're a Christian, it's because you were first chosen by God before the foundations of the earth. And it's by the faith that you have exercised to receive his very word. According to Jesus, those things go together. They aren't mutually exclusive. So Jesus is in effect saying, Father, you've given me these people. This was the plan from the beginning. They did just what we said they would. So now... Jesus turns and he asks two things that the Father would do for them. The first is protect them. Protect them in verses 11 through 16. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus' ask of his Father is that he Keep them, that is the disciples, in your name. Now in the Bible, in your name, the the name of God can refer to God's authority. In this place, I, I think it's referring to his character. Jesus is saying, in effect, keep them in line with the character you have revealed of yourself. Keep them as faithful servants. Keep them going the right direction, serving the God they claim to know. Why is this necessary? Well, verses 12 and 13, because Jesus is leaving the world. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. See, the problem is Jesus has been doing this work of keeping them in the name of his Father, But Jesus is about to leave, so he asks the Father to continue this work, to guard them. Now, what is it that the Father has to guard them against? What what forces might try and take them out of line with the Father's revealed character? Well, two things, the world and the devil. The world and the devil. In verse 14, you see the power of the world. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus unpacked this back a few chapters ago. He he said that his disciples would be hated in this world for their association with him. 
Now, realize that the pressure that the hatred of the world puts on a disciple is to either conform and become invisible or to detach and become silent. Jesus is asking the Father to keep either of those things from happening because his disciples have to remain living in the world to be on mission to it. For his disciples to continue his work, to reach people with this message of eternal life and salvation, they have to be able to interact with all the non-Christians and where they live. And so he's asking his father to protect them so that they would not either assimilate or grow silent, but instead to remain on mission for him. The second thing that they need to be guarded against is the very devil himself. You can see that in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As Christians, we believe there are many that don't believe in Christ, some even that are enemies of him very overtly, others just rebel in their hearts. And yet behind every opposition to Jesus are spiritual realities, uh, angels and demons, even a chief enemy of God, the devil himself. Jesus here acknowledges this fact that he prays that his father would keep the devil from being able to destroy his disciples. Now, friends, those are difficult things to, to ponder, that a world would be opposed to Christians, that the devil himself would want to destroy them. And so it's good news that Jesus would take the time to pray that his disciples would not be crushed by these threats, that his father would in fact guard them. Because if Jesus prays for something, something happens. Jesus gets what he asks for in prayer. And he asked that the the father would not let any of his disciples be overcome by the world or the devil. And, And history tells us none of those original disciples did. Judas walked off, but Jesus said that was always part of the plan. The other 11 were persecuted. Most of them were martyred or killed for Jesus. And they remained faithful to the end. There's a second thing that Jesus asked the Father to do in 17 through 19. And that's to prepare them. He says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That word sanctify is one of those church words that just kind of flies over your head if we don't slow down. It's just a word that has the idea of something being set aside for special use. You could think of in the temple how there were certain instruments, uh, altars and cups and things that were only used for sacrifices. Kids, you probably get this idea. There are certain things that you only use in certain circumstances. Uh, Maybe you wear one set of shoes to uh, church on Sunday morning. I hope it's not the same pair of shoes you go play out in the mud in. Um, You reserve the expensive, nice-looking shoes for being indoors, doing things where you need to look nice. Maybe you have a pair of boots that you use to go jumping in puddles and things like that. Uh, There's uh, an idea of setting something aside so it'll be useful for a particular task. Well, Jesus is here praying that his disciples would be set aside to serve God, that they would be ready for their master's use. Now, how is it that they will be set aside? Well, he tells us, verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The thing that will bring about this usefulness from God 
is truth, specifically the truth of the word. Jesus here talking about how the Bible, the very words of God, change us. It goes from our ears to our minds. We learn something of God, but it doesn't just stay as mind knowledge. It goes down to our hearts, and it, it transforms us. It makes us more like Jesus, and it makes us more useful for the Father's use. It, it works like this. You grow in your understanding of the Bible, and you grow in how much you are like Jesus, and you grow in your capacity to serve God. Jesus is praying that the Father would do this work in his disciples because they will need it. They will have to stare down princes and kings. They will have to refute errors and philosophers. And he, if he prays that for his first disciples, it's also applicable to each of us. The way Jesus sanctifies us is by his very word passed down to us in the Bible. Now, if you're here this morning and maybe you haven't seen much growth in your Christian life in a while, uh, I wonder, have you stopped reading the Bible? Uh, all of us go through seasons where it's harder to work ourselves up in our devotions to find reading the Bible enjoyable and fun. And I can't tell you how many times pastoral counseling ends up coming back to the root of this very thing. Somewhere along the way, someone stopped praying and stopped reading the Bible. And little by little, their Christian faith started to crumble. Now, I'm not saying that you need to understand everything. And if you're here this morning and you're a young Christian, please understand that the disciples Jesus was talking to, they, they didn't have perfect faith, but it was real faith. They didn't understand any, everything. But what they understood was true and real. And however much God has given you, just know you're responsible for that. And you should desire to know more and to grow in what you know over time. But for all of us as Christians, if we believe what Jesus prays here is actually true, then we should expect that the way we would actually grow as Christians is through the Bible. That's one of the reasons why it's so important that you come to church regularly. At the very least, at least you hear the word of God preached. And the word as it has its effect on your heart. It makes you more useful for service to God. Now, I know that that could be received in a way that could crush you. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you know you haven't been doing this well, and you frankly don't feel like you have the strength to just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just do it better. What do you do then? Well, I'm so thankful that this sweet, sweet prayer ends on a note of grace. Because the Jesus who prays that we be sanctified by his word, at the end, in verse 19, he shows us how he guarantees that this will actually come to pass. Look at verse 19. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says that he is going to consecrate himself. That's another one of those big words. It's actually the same root word, both for sanctify and consecrate. It's not that Jesus needs to separate himself from sin, but Jesus is about to start doing a special ministry towards sinners. So he is setting himself apart like a, the, the priest would on the Day of Atonement 
to prepare for this ministry that he will have. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He is about to go to a borrowed tomb. He's about to rise to life again and then one day to be ascending back into heaven. And when he does, he doesn't kick up his heels and say, I'm done with my ministry to these people. No, he begins a new phase of his ministry as high priest forever for God's people. If you think back to the Day of Atonement, a particular priest was given the task of cleansing himself, of bringing the right sacrifices and praying for the people so that the people could have forgiveness of sins for a year. But Jesus is preparing to be the high priest forever, to go in the temple of heaven, to bring not a sacrifice of a bull or a goat, but the sacrifice of his own life and to pray for his people without ceasing so that the very things that he longs for most will surely happen in their life. So dear brother or sister, maybe this week you don't feel like you are up to being able to live as a useful servant. You don't even feel like you have enough strength to read the Bible for any length of time. Would you find comfort in this thought that Jesus has prayed for you? That Jesus, your great high priest, has made all the sacrifice needed for your sin. And that when Jesus prays for something, things happen. Jesus gets what he prays for. We should have confidence that our high priest, he won't fail. He will save us to the uttermost as we draw near to God through him. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song about Jesus in that high priestly role. And just listen to these words and let it bolster your heart and your faith. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Brothers and sisters, final words are weighty. But this final prayer recorded by John from our Savior Jesus, what a window into his heart what love he had for his disciples, what love he has for you, and what joy to live for the glory of God, even for the very cross that he must bear. Let's pray.